Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. If your child is struggling in school, then IXL is right for your family. IXL is an online learning program for kids that covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. Backed by research, kids using IXL are scoring higher on tests. It's no wonder it's used in 95% of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Plus, a month of IXL costs less than an hour of tutoring. Get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com 20. Visit IXL.com 20 to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Scott Adams, the man, the myth, the legend. Of course, everyone knows him from Dilbert, probably the most popular syndicated cartoon ever. It just perfectly summarizes the pain and agony of cubicle life and the workplace. And Scott's been there, done that, and he cartooned about it. He, he used the cartoon to escape that one career. Then he went on to political punditry fame when he amazingly predicted in early 2015 that Donald Trump would be not only the nominee, but quite possibly the president. How did he do that? He describes in the book, Win Bigly. He's also been on this podcast several times discussing politics and how he predicted it. It's it very interesting because he has a background as a hypnotist and he thought Trump used hypnotism techniques to, to win. And we, we talk about that a lot in the prior podcast. And also, I highly recommend his book, Win Bigly. He also, and in one of our podcasts, we discuss another book of his that was really great, How to Fail at Almost Everything and Still Win Big. But this book, his latest book, Reframe Your Brain, The User Interface for Happiness and Success. This book really summarizes in a very simple way techniques for improving your life and your outlook on life in a really just systematic way. And it, and when reading the book, I was thinking to myself, oh, I do this, I do this, I do this. But I always thought all these things were just a collection, a hodgepodge of things I was doing. And he describes it all in one kind of system that you could then apply to any situation. So reframe your brain. It's all about these reframes, how to reframe the brain. You should definitely buy the book, but also we discuss it thoroughly on the podcast and we have a fun conversation. And then when I was booking this podcast, I've had Scott on a lot. I consider him a friend. We always have great conversations. And as many of you know, I haven't been on as active on social media in the past few years. And somebody told me, oh, Scott Adams is canceled. And I'm like, what, what, how did he, uh, how did he get canceled? And so I looked it up and sure enough, like I see many of these situations, some things he said were completely taken out of context, but I wanted to find out what the story was. So I asked him about it and we talk about that. It's part of this podcast, it's part of this episode. So let me know what you think. Uh, subscribe to the podcast if you can, tell all your friends about it and enjoy. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show.
Scott, how's it going? I haven't talked to you in a while. Uh, lots of things have happened, apparently, to both of us since the last time we talked. How's Atlanta? Atlanta, Atlanta is pretty good. I, you know, it's tricky because I've never really lived outside of the New York City or the New York City area, and it's like a different universe outside of New York City. So, yeah. and I don't drive, so I'm basically like in my house all the time. Yeah, are you not going to learn to drive? I don't really. I feel like right now driving a car would just be a weapon in my hands, and eventually I would kill someone with that weapon. Well, I've got a friend who has a Tesla who illegally lets it drive itself everywhere. <laughs> she falls asleep in it. So maybe you need really? one of those. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't know. Um, I, you're saying it's illegal, so you're not allowed to do that? I think you're supposed to keep your hands on the wheel or, you know, you're, you're not supposed to fall asleep. That's the part I know for sure. I feel like that's starting to border into things that people worry about in terms of computers looking at us and then telling us what to do. Well, it, it is so driving home the fact that the human is the weak spot in the whole driving process. It's like, why, why are we even involved? Like, my GPS tells me to turn right, and then my, my arms do what the GPS tells me to do. Like, I feel like you could take me out of this equation, you know, self-driving cars, of course. But uh, every time I drive, I think this is designed to support my ego. Like, it makes no sense. I guess they're worried that maybe there might be, you know, one in a million spots where the GPS doesn't work or it doesn't recognize a moving object that's, that's moving across the ground or it doesn't recognize a certain sign or a sign's been, you know, graffiti's on it so it, you don't, it doesn't see the stop sign. I don't know. Like maybe they're worried about the, the odd thing that, that could go wrong. But in a year or two, those odd things will be eliminated. Yeah, the, the new way they're training the cars with just using video instead of rules is just mind-boggling. Yeah, just showed a million scenes and it knows how to drive. Do you think it'll ever be the case that, you know, already creativity is being impinged upon by AI? Like, do you ever think it would be the case that I could say, hey, give me a cartoon in the style of Dilbert that's funnier than any Dilbert cartoon? Well, you know, I keep hearing people say, well, ChatGPT, they did a test where people would see if they could determine the AI writing versus a human, and people were terrible at it. They couldn't tell the difference. But my theory is that you could tell the difference if it were humor, probably if it was you know, eroticism. There's probably a whole bunch of kinds of writing that you would immediately identify as human or not human, and humor is at the top of the list. You, you would know if a, if a high-end humorist wrote something, you would know it was not AI. Yeah, I guess I guess that's true. I feel the same about, like, like I hate to say it because it sounds snobbish, but like literary fiction. I feel like when a writer has a strong voice behind their writing, it's hard for a computer to understand what that means. Yeah, the, the computer, in theory, the way they do AI now, everything should be average. Right. Because it's looking at everything that everybody's done forever, and it's not going to take the outliers. It's going to take something like the most common thing. And so I don't even know how it would be possible that AI would write better than the best human writers. So I, I have this, I have a provocative AI hypothesis that the best AI can never be better than the best human at that same task, uh, not counting speed. Obviously, speed we won't keep up with. But let's say you had an AI expert at 
just anything that humans are also an expert at. The human expert would judge the AI, not the other way around. So if the AI disagrees with the best human expert, the human expert will say, well, you know, I'm right. <laughs> so you, you must be less than me. So you're not quite there yet. I don't know if that's true, though, because I can think of some domains where humans will not be as good as AI. Like, for instance, the law. So if I, let's say just something as simple as traffic tickets. I get a traffic ticket and I want the AI to solve my problem. The AI knows every law ever written in the state that I'm worried about. So it'll probably know, have more knowledge to draw from than the average lawyer or even an expert lawyer. You know, that logically that makes sense. But then as soon as the real world interferes, let me give you just one concrete example. Something I was once involved with many years ago, it was a, a legal situation in which the prevailing party managed to find an attorney who golfs with a judge. Now, was the AI going to do that for me? That's true. So AI can't hustle. It doesn't have human legs and arms and so on. So when there's, when there's techniques that actually involve a human presence and what that human presence does, then the AI can't compete. But if it's just intellectual activity, I feel like in many domains, the AI could do it better. So certainly the AI could, you know, check case law faster. Yeah. So, so speed, it wins every time. But do you want an AI arguing for your, your case? If you know it won't lie and it won't spin, <laughs> right? You want you want the human who will do everything that is necessary, even if it's a little bit sketchy, as long as you don't go to jail. That, that's why I took it as something as simple as like traffic tickets. So yes, I don't want if it's a murder trial and and it involves arguing in court, I don't want the AI doing deals with the DA and and so on, and or I don't want the AI and arguing the case in front of the court. But if it's something as simple as traffic tickets, where it's just some, an, a mailing that has to be sent in and it's all negotiated through mail, then maybe I think I would trust the AI better. Let, let, let me throw another one at you. So here, here is a real world, real world traffic issue I had. I got a ticket for parking somewhere on the street, and I went in and argued that the tree had grown up over the sign. Hmm. So I didn't know there was no parking. The judge looked at it and said, you're the third one who's come in here with that same street and that same tree and cut it in half. I still, I still got penalized, but cut it in half because it was only half my fault, I guess. Now, would the machine have done that? No, that's true. So you're saying basically humans might not know, even though the, the, the AI has lots of case law, the AI is not going to know every special case in the real world that could, could and realistically occur. Right. So the, the judge in that case had a sense of fairness which the judge thought was more important maybe than the letter of the law, because what was more important than me getting the right result was that the system looked credible when I walked out the door. So what made it feel credible to me is that my complaint was heard. She goes, yeah, that's, that's the thing, but we can't let you get off completely. So you pay half. And I thought, well, that's not, I mean, would the machine have done that? Would the machine have known how I feel? Right. Because that's how, that's how that was based on it. How I feel because the judge would have felt the same thing in my situation. The machine can't do that. What about like when I, you know, we, we discussed writing, but what about something like, like visual art? When I look at some of the output of Midjourney, it just seems so beautiful to me. And I'm not like a judge or critic of art at all, but some of it, like just depending on the prompt seems really amazing. Music might be the same thing. 
Yeah, my, my next provocative AI uh, hypothesis is that AI music and visual art will be impressive, but we will not find it our normal form of art. And the reason would be this, that the reason you like art is not the reason you think. You think you like it because, wow, that's beautiful. Or you hear a song and you say, that, that just I love that. That feels, feels good. But the moment I told you that it was not made by a human, either the art or the song, you would lose the evolutionary um, instinct that you want to have sex with the person who made that painting or made that song. And even if you're, you know, even if it's your same gender and you're not interested in having sex with them or whatever the situation, you still pick it up as a human exceptional capability. And that's the only thing you're responding to. You just don't know it. That, that is so fascinating. I, yeah. And, and maybe the, the way I was thinking about it was that let's take music. Part of the reason we might like a certain song is because of the raw emotion behind the singer. And there's real life experience that fuels that emotion and fuels that voice. But you're sort of saying that's not really what I like in music. That's, it's just that I want to have sex with that person because of that raw emotion. And I know it's from a real person. Yeah, I'm simplifying a little bit, but take the case of uh, uh, Oliver Anthony. Do I have the name right? The I'm not sure. Gentleman with the that's the Richmond, richer than Richmond guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That. So you hear his song, and there's a part of it where I was resisting listening to it because it, it wasn't my you know genre, but then I heard it, and you get to that part where you're saying you know the the pay is bullshit, and you just go whoa, like I I could feel that. Yeah. Like he transmitted he transmitted the feeling from his body directly into my body. That's like, you know, ultimate art. But suppose you had made a, a deep fake and you knew that a computer had generated that exact same sound. If I knew it was a computer, would I even feel it? And the answer is probably only a little bit. Yeah. You know, sort of like when you watch a movie, you feel it. But the fact that it's not real makes you feel it in a compartmentalized way. It's an, it's an interesting theory because there's, for many years now, there's been... AI generated music, like AI generated Mozart, that the experts can't tell the difference between this and real Mozart. And yet it's not like I'll spend all day listening to AI generated Mozart. I never will do that. I'll only listen to the real thing, perhaps for the reason you say. There, there's no real rational answer in my head why I would do that. It's just that's what I would do. And maybe it's because of what you just said. Yeah, I, I spend uh, maybe two weeks or so using AI to generate cool uh, new art for my, my own podcast. And I'd use it, you know, just to promote it. It'd be like pictures of me with, you know, big muscles or riding unicorns or whatever. And to me, I thought they were visually like really good. So this was an upgrade to my podcast. It took about two weeks before my audience said, you know what we'd really like? We'd like to see the same picture of you every day holding a coffee cup. Because it's 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 actually you. It's like it's real. Yeah. And and um, I lost all interest in the AI art because after I'd seen a hundred or so, they had a sameness to them, which was a lack of life, but still they were perfect. But I, I could almost feel the lack of life. I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice 
Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and, and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e- it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The famous Abraham Lincoln quote says, good things come to those who wait. I wonder, did he really say that? Jay, did he really say that? Can you look that up? Regardless of who said it, that's only part of the quote. The full quote is, good things come to those who wait, but only the things left by those who hustle. Well, if you're a business owner and want the best people on your team, the same applies. And listen, I've interviewed 1,500 people now and a lot of entrepreneurs. I can safely say the one thing consistent among all entrepreneurs and CEOs, the the successful ones, is that it's all about the people you surround yourself. You, if you hire well, you're going to have a great business. And, you know, thankfully, ZipRecruiter puts the hustle in your hiring. So you find qualified candidates fast. This is so important, and I, I want you to try it. You could try it as a potential employer or employee. You can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter's smart technology finds top talent for your roles right away. Immediately after you post your job, if you're hiring, ZipRecruiter's matching technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I will tell you that I signed up on ZipRecruiter as a potential employee. You know, I just wanted to see how it works. And right away, it started matching me with really amazing potential employers. So give it a try at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Let ZipRecruiter give you the hiring hustle you need. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash James to try it for free. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. When you look at AI-generated writing, no matter how good it is, there's almost this uncanny like feeling the same thing you would you would feel if you were in a vr for a long time like ultimately your brain would say wait a second this is not real and you would feel sick so probably your your listeners seeing the ai sky adams over and over again uh, and this is by the way why i wouldn't let ai read my ads on the podcast in my voice because i don't want the listeners to get sick of that voice while listening to my podcast even if it sounds exactly like me i i do think there's always going to be this uncanny valley thing going on. And I don't know if AI will ever overcome that. Yeah. Uh, I like to use the uh, Japanese pottery example. Um, when Japanese potters became so good that they could make a pot that looked like it was made by a machine, nobody wanted them because <laughs> you wanted your master to leave some uh, sign that a human had worked on it. So they started introducing intentional errors to make it look like a master potter had made it, because in Japan, that's that's a big deal, a master potter. Um, 
so I think we're going to look for the errors. The, the errors are the art. The thing I say about art, um, one of my most famous quotes that goes around online, is that creativity is allowing yourself to make mistakes, but art is knowing which of the mistakes to keep. And the, the example I use of that is that Dilbert has no mouth. So Dilbert became one of the more famous, iconic cartoon characters, but he has no eyeballs and no mouth and no neck. And would AI know that people would like that when that's three errors? Or would AI say, well, there's no way I'm going to make you know, a character without a mouth. <laughs> that would be the most basic thing you'd put on a character's face. Yeah. I just left it out. It, it was an error. An error that made it better. It's fascinating because I remember either talking to you about this or reading about this, that to some extent that made Dilbert an everyman because everybody can picture their own sort of mouth or face or whatever in, in that place. Because if, if you ask somebody on the street, did Dilbert have a mouth? They would say, of course he did. They wouldn't even remember <laughs> that he didn't. So they would, yeah, because the, yeah. probably they projected something into that story that was theirs. Yeah, in general, there's a concept in um, in cartooning. It's got a name. I think it's something like completion or something like that. I may have that wrong. But it's the idea that people will imagine the parts you didn't draw. Yeah, if you can suggest it, they'll see it and they'll remember it like they saw it. But it just won't be there. It's part of the art. This is the theory why books always seem to be better than the movies, because you've already cast and viewed the entire movie when you're reading the book, and it's much better than any real-life movie could be. Well, it's also different. I had that problem when I animated Dilbert and I put an actor's voice. You know, Daniel Stern was the voice of Dilbert. And that matched pretty much what I heard in my head. But everybody had already heard a different voice in their head. And they said, no, that's not the voice I hear. So, yeah, they, they get pretty picky about that. So I love this new book you have, uh, Reframe Your Brain, The User Interface for Happiness and Success. By the way, when you say the user interface for happiness and success, did you really feel the need for a subtitle? Like I really, I always ask authors, like subtitles always seem kind of boring to me. I get it with reframe your brain. Yeah. Like then the user interface for happiness and success. Okay. Maybe I'll look at that or maybe I'll remember that. I don't know. Yeah. I wanted to make the connection that it was a mechanical process, not magic, you know? And so the, the computer interface, it turns out my, my timing was accidentally extraordinarily good. You know, except for the part about getting canceled. But uh, the book came out after people understood that AI could be created by simply word pattern combinations. So that you could create something like intelligence from something like a bunch of words that people have used in certain patterns and combinations. And that's something that hypnotists have, have known forever, which is that the thing we think is our logic and our reason sometimes is, but most of the time, it's just words that fit together. So people will say, well, if those words work in a sentence, that must be something like thinking. And the beauty of a reframe, which is just a simple sentence you put in your head, is that it doesn't need to make sense, same as AI is taking nonsense and turning it into intelligence. You can simply reprogram or optimize your head by putting a little sentence in there that has a different combination of words. So the way your brain works and AI taught us this, is you have to have the words in the right order and the right words, and then you, you formed intelligence. So that's what a reframe is. And it made it easier to explain if people already knew what AI was. Yeah, it, it's interesting. And I want to get to all these different connections because there, there's a very deep aspect to this book, which is what is the connection between consciousness and who we are and 
the thoughts we think. And basically there's no connection because just by changing the words that's going on in your head, you could completely change your, you know, what's going on in your life from, from uh, just a conversation at a party to your anxiety and depression and stress to your work life and so on. Your consciousness is still, I guess, the same, but all the thoughts and words you're, you're, you're using in your head. Like I'll just give a, a simple example from that. That's a kind of almost a cliche example, but imagine someone is pretty well to do, but they're having a hard time in their life. They're having a hard time with their boss or whatever. One reframe is imagine you're, you know, the poorest person living in a refugee camp in, you know, some third world country. And now you're suddenly in this brain, this person, this body of someone who's making 150,000 a year in a cubicle in the U S your life would be incredible. So that's just, that's a, re, a cliche reframing that works. So one of the most popular reframes in my book is sort of similar to that. And that I say, imagine if you just spawned into existence right now and you didn't know anything about your past. You just poop, you woke up like you're in a video game and you said, all right, what resources do I have? What's my situation? And if you could start from that and say to yourself, oh, that's a pretty good position to be in. You know, I would wake up in my current job in a nice house with this cute little dog. And I would say, I love that dog. This house is cool. I, you know, I have an income. I, I get to talk to you. you know, and I'd say, that's good. But a minute before I respond, I was worrying because, I don't know, I had a leak in my kitchen or something. Yeah. Right? You're like, oh, damn, and, and like, this always happens. Plumbing again. <laughs> right. So if you, if you saw your life as the continuation of, of all that, you have a whole different idea than if you say, if I woke up into this life today, would I be happy about it? My answer is yes. Yeah, things would be pretty good. I, when I when I read that that reframing, you have a, a hundred or so examples of of reframes in here. When I read that one, that I responded to a lot because I have done that for many years. Where something similar, where when I wake up in the morning, I imagine I'm an alien from some third dimension universe. I've never been to this universe, and I have to immediately figure out what is going on. Who am I? What, do, what are the rules of physics of this universe? And I'm here for a mission where I have, I'm only here for 24 hours and I have to help this body somehow during the next 24 hours. So that's my reframing every morning. I try to do it every morning. It's like a little mini meditation. That, that, that is a fascinating look inside, you know, people's crazy heads. Like we're all crazy on the inside. Yeah. I, I, I like that little reveal. Here, here's one for me. Um, when I first became, you know, well-known as a cartoonist. Uh, I'd be working really hard, you know, long days, doing two or three jobs. And I'd wake up in the morning, there was about a three seconds when I knew I was a human being, but I didn't know which one. And I'd wake up and I'd be like, I'm a human. How's this going to go? Who am I? Oh, I'm a famous cartoonist. And then my day would be fine after that. Because for three seconds, I could have been anybody. But I woke up into a cool job. Like, wow, this is great. Yeah, that, that always made me happy. Let me ask you, is there anybody in the world you would rather be than you? Oh, man. Uh, this gets to my basket case theory. This it, is sort of a reframe on its own. That everybody seems nice and awesome until you get to know their deepest you know, secrets. And then everybody kind of falls apart the more you know them. 
It's like, oh, I didn't know that you had that, you know, terrible addiction or this trauma that haunts you every single moment of your life or, or that, you know, you have this health problem that's going to end you in three weeks and I didn't know about it. So people carry around enormous secrets. So when you ask a question of who would I rather be, I feel like it's just, it's a lateral move. Like I, I would just take on somebody else's set of problems, but it, you know, if you ask me who's the person with fewer problems and more upside, I think you'd just be guessing. So I don't really think of the world that way. I, I never envy other people's lives. What if like, so you, you kind of measure happiness and you, you describe it in the book here. I, I thought I bookmarked it, but maybe I didn't. You say it's uh, happiness is a function of how many times per day uh, you have exercise, sex, and it was a third thing. Uh, work, work, productive work. Yeah, productive work. Yeah. So, so what if you knew the measurement score for everybody in the world on those three metrics, and you found the person who was the highest? That that, that would get you really close. <laughs> yeah. So just to restate that, I've said that I can always judge my own happiness in any given day by whether I've done at least two of the three things. Either I had a really productive day, um, I got some really good exercise, or I had some intimacy, physical, sexual intimacy. Now, if I've done two of those things, I can guarantee I had a good day. If I do all three, well, I'm just, I'm just killing it. I mean, I'm absolutely happy that day. But if I only get one of them, even if it's the most fun one, I'm going to feel empty. Yeah, it was great while it happens, but then I'm a little empty afterwards. So that, that was my little formula. But, you know, even that formula, which works so well for me, uh, I can imagine, you know, porting it into some other person and finding out that they, you know, they're grappling with sexual dysmorphia or some other problem that I've never, never encountered myself. So I just don't assume other people are, are killing it. Uh, I just assume that I don't know their problems. What about, you know, aging? How would you reframe? So, so you're older than you were when you were half your age. Obviously, you're the, today you're the oldest you've ever been, and aging to some extent sucks more than it's good. So there are some benefits to aging that we know of and we can philosophize about, but the reality is, in most cases, it's better to be younger than older. And how would you reframe the disappointments of aging? Well, I would first point out that if you talk to anybody who's older and say, would you like to go back to that you know, teenage years, you're not going to get a lot of yes. You do not get a lot of yes to would you like to go back and be young again. People, and then the studies of especially women, I think women are happiest after they're 40. I think you know, 40 to 60, women tend to be quite happy. Um, but in my own experience, uh, health is the only thing that determines you know, how you feel age-wise. And if you stay fit, um, you end up being wiser, uh, having more assets, and then you're also healthy. That's, that's the, you know, the trifecta there. So when I was young, I had the, the health, but I also had way too much energy. You know, and the energy is not always good, like you can't control it. And um, I didn't know how things would work out. So I had to worry every day, will I have enough money? Will I succeed? Will, will I do anything worthwhile? But now those questions are largely answered. I, I love the best part of my life that I like is that I was always the Dilbert guy. Now you can't take that away. You can cancel me. I could be disgraced, 
but you know, I still experienced it. I'm still that person. So a lot of the mysteries are gone, which is amazingly satisfying. And I would imagine people who have, you know, kids and grandkids and, you know, they, they have that whole situation working well. I would imagine they just love being older. Uh, everybody I talk to my age, they might have some new problems, especially if they don't have a mate, you know, if they're uh, widowed, especially. Uh, but people like the age way more than you think, even with the physical infirmities, you know, which, which we all have. Yeah, I guess that's true. I guess maybe people regret age only when they start really, when the fast decline happens, if it happens, and then you really kind of get a sense that, oh, this is, this is not good. So let's back up a second and just talk about this concept of reframing. And the idea is we have many hard things in our life or patterns that we get into that create negative thinking or anxiety or stress or fear or whatever. And you almost, the idea of reframing or the concept is almost like, I don't want to say hypnotize, but you, you kind of look at a, a, a situation with a different lens. Like we've given some examples. What's some other examples that you think really resonate with people? And, and again, you have lots of examples in your book. I've, I've bookmarked it all over the place. Like for instance, this one, this one's about stress. So the usual frame is my stress and anxiety are caused by events in my life. But the reframe, which is great, I won't care about any of those events on my deathbed. So like if some, if some employee or colleague is not calling me back and I'm really upset about it, like, well, you better call me back. On, the death, on my deathbed, I'm not even going to remotely think about this. It's not, and so I really shouldn't think about it now. Like I should, it's not that important. Well, you, you can imagine yourself on your deathbed, and the benefit is, at least for a while, it takes you out of that head where you had that immediate problem. So it not only relaxes you in the short term, but it is like a more permanent reframe. I'll tell you where I saw this most starkly. When I first started cartooning, but I was still working my day job, and then my cartooning income started creeping up, and I realized that if I got fired or if I quit, I'd be fine. You know, I finally had an escape plan. From that point on, every day I went to work, all of the things that would anger me and frustrate me completely didn't bother me a bit because I didn't have to be there. They were still the same. I still had to deal with them. I still had to overcome them. But none of them bothered me as soon as I realized it was optional to be there. What about for people where it's not optional? Right. So, so I wouldn't say that's as much a reframe as that was your reality. You could have just quit any point. Yeah. And what about, let's say someone who's got 17 kids and three mortgages and their boss hates them, but they, and they can't really find a new job or they feel like they can't find a new job and they're going to work in the morning and they just hate it. What's a reframe that they could use other than the fact that I don't really have 17 kids? <laughs> uh, well, uh, I first say that if you have 17 kids, you're killing it because, you know, the, the ultimate victory is some, some would say would be spreading your genes. Although I have a, a reframe for people who don't want to do that. Um, I would say that the reframe you should look at is that everybody who succeeds does it pretty similar ways, which means that, uh, if they don't have enough talent in their talent stack, go add something, some skill or talent it works well with what you already have, and that will probably give you better opportunities. Now, uh, and you'd also want to focus on systems versus goals. For example, if you have a goal of making more money, but you're not actually doing anything about it, you need a system. So a system might be uh, every day I'm going to learn something from my talent stack, or every day I'm going to work on my fitness a little bit 
because that helps you in every domain, including your career. So systems and talent stacks would be where I'd go for career stuff. I like this because the actual reframe then is instead of saying, oh man, I'm, I suck and I'm mediocre because of this horrible, this perceived horrible life situation I'm in. The reframe is, oh, I did at least one thing today to improve my skill set. That's really the important thing. So today was a successful day, regardless of my boss and the mortgage and all this stuff. Yeah. And I would add to that, uh, I'll call it the Band-Aid reframe I wrote about as well. When my young stepson would get, uh, let's say, a cut or a bruise, and he'd be he'd be wailing, and uh, I would wisely walk him and say, oh, "Let me see that." You know, I'd take a look at his little cut or whatever, and say, "That's a that's a four minute situation." And he'd be like, "What do you mean?" I go, "That'll hurt for uh, it hurts now, right? That's going to hurt for four minutes." And he's like, "Really? Four minutes?" I go, "Yeah, based on my experience, that's about a four minute problem." As soon as he knows it's temporary, and also knows when the end date is, even though I just made it up, uh, his, his mental state completely relaxed. And then he just dealt with the fact that it hurt a little bit, but his mental state was completely solved by knowing it was temporary. So in the case of your person with a bad job and everything's not working out, uh, like you said, if there's a little progress that day, they can hold on to that. But I found that when I was in my twenties and I had really a horrible situation, <laughs> you know, I had a little apartment with no window. You know, a shared bathroom down the all no friends. I was, didn't have a car. I was in a city that I didn't know anyone. And but I told myself this is temporary, right? This is going to be hard, but it has an end time. I'll, I will build up enough skills so that I can't be denied, right? And I was just working on skills every day. And eventually, I had enough skills, so I had lots of options, and I couldn't be denied. That that is a powerful reframe. And again, I feel one a lot of people have a similar type of reframe to kind of get, get through the day. Uh, like I, like my daughter has anxiety, just like I feel I did when I was her age. Like a lot of, like sometimes situations get blown out of proportion in her head and she thinks disaster is about to happen. And so I always tell her, I've been keeping track of all the times, all the disasters you've predicted are going to happen to you <laughs> and none of them come true. So just, uh either assume that this one also probably won't come true or just start writing it down so you can see for yourself that your predictions are, you're a really horrible predictor of your own future. And that it actually, she has told me in recent years that that has worked for her. So that, that's a good reframe. Uh, I've used that as well. Uh, another one that goes to that is the potato reframe. Now the potato reframe works like this. You, the reason that we feel anxious or nervous is that we feel there's some threat to us either socially or in some other way. So if you thought you were completely unimportant, then your anxiety would go away because there's nothing to protect. And that, that's your ego talking, that the ego is the part that's afraid of everything. So I use this example. If somebody told you to uh, take a priceless painting across the street to the museum and just carry it across the street, just hold it in your hands and just walk across the street with it, you would be panicked. Because you'd have this 40 million painting and you think, even though this is easy, I'm just walking across the street like anything could go wrong because it's so valuable. But if I said, here's a potato, could you walk this over to the, uh, the restaurant? They asked for a potato for some reason. It's just a russet potato. You'd say, all right. You'd be tossing it up in the air as you walked across because the potato would have no special value. So the reframe is you're the potato. 
You're not the priceless art. Stop worrying that bad things will happen to you. You're not that important. And as weird as that is to tell yourself you're not important, uh, one of the other reframes is your ego, the part that says, oh, I'm, I'm this precious thing which must be protected from all, all injury. Your ego is not your friend. Your ego is literally your enemy. It's the one that's keeping you from asking somebody out. It's the one that keeps you from getting on stage at a comedy club. It's the thing that keeps you from everything that's good in life is your ego saying this might not work out if I try it. I'm afraid of the harm. Don't hurt yourself. So instead of seeing your ego as the thing you to protect, see it as the thing that you need to push aside so that you can get the benefits of life. And you know, I think we all know on some level that the thing that's going to get you is usually not the thing you see coming, right? It's kind of rare that your biggest, you know, actual real problem in life was one that you saw coming for, you know, 10 years. It's usually the one that just, where did that come from? You know, why did somebody hit me on the head with a, a bat when I walked down the street? I did not see that coming. So some of those might help. If your child is struggling in school, then IXL is right for your family. IXL is an online learning program for kids that covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. Backed by research, kids using IXL are scoring higher on tests. It's no wonder it's used in 95% of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Plus, a month of IXL costs less than an hour of tutoring. Get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com 20. Visit IXL.com 20 to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. I want to go from big problems to small problems a little bit. So for a while, I lived in a situation where it was a very social environment and I'm just horrible at small talk and I would get socially anxious just hanging out with people. And one reframe I tried a little bit was that, hey, I'm actually an anthropologist observing this situation. So it doesn't matter as much if I'm just, if I'm talking to people or just standing in the corner observing. But like, what are, and, and you give advice here about how to, in this book, about how to be more social and, and reframe. But what's a specific reframe for if you're like right in the middle of like, let's say a party and you just start, you have nothing to say to anybody and you're feeling anxious about it? So this is a, a two-parter, but it's probably one of the most valuable things anybody listening is going to pick up from this. Part one is to understand that social interactions, especially small talk and meeting strangers and that sort of thing, is a learned skill, not a natural skill. And the Dale Carnegie course teaches you exactly that skill. Uh, and I can teach it to you in 30 seconds, which is people are uh, people like you when you ask questions and show genuine interest in them because everybody cares about themselves. So the Dale Carnegie approach is to just ask people basic questions that aren't too threatening. Things like, hey, what's your name? You know, introduce yourself. 
you know, where do you work? Uh, why, are, why are you here? Depending on what the event is, you might say, are you a friend of the bride or the groom? You know, there's always a question like, you know, what's your place here without being too nosy. And you might ask, you know, you have kids, where do they go to school? Got any vacations planned? If you're just making small talk now, when I was a teenager, if somebody had told me that would work, I would say, so you're saying that I should just be blah, blah, blah with somebody and not really with any purpose. There's no information being transferred. Like, how do we come out better in this this interaction? And one of the things you learn is that the interaction itself, independent of what you're saying, is the payoff. It's a payoff that you've, you've uh, connected with a human. You've given them something of value which is your interest in your time. People love that because it makes them feel important. So if you imagine that you can easily develop those skills just to walk into the place and say, hey, my name is blank. You know, what's your name? Uh, what, do, what do you do? So once you develop that, you're in the top 10% of people who can handle a social situation. So now when you walk into it, you know that 90% of the people there are worse off than you are. That's the first reframe. They're worse off than you. Everybody is feeling awkward. Everybody is feeling they wish they knew what to do. Everybody's thinking, how do I stop talking to this one and mingle? Everybody's thinking, how do I break into this group? They're all the same. So here's the ultimate reframe. Once you've learned those really simple skills of how to engage people and make it more about them than about yourself, you know, you're not telling stories, you're listening to stories, you're asking questions to evoke stories. Once you get that simple technique, you walk into the party and you're not the one with the problem. You're the solution to 90% of the problems in the room. You see yeah. somebody that looks like they're suffering, walk right over to them. That person's suffering. You, you can tell they're socially awkward. Just walk right up to them and say, hey, I'm Scott. How you doing? You just solve their problem. They don't know what to say. doesn't matter. You can solve that problem by asking them questions. They all know their name. They all know where they work. They know why they're there. Give them simple questions. And then eventually, if you ask the right questions, you end up with a, a connection. So it might go like this. So where do you work? Blah, blah. Do, you, do you have any kids? Oh, yeah. Where did they go to school? Oh, my kid went to school there. And then suddenly, did they have that teacher? Remember, there was that hard teacher? Now you've got something to talk about. So once you learn that simple technique, you're the problem solver. You walk into the room like a king or a queen. And every person there is somebody who's a problem you can solve. Aren't they, are you, aren't they happy that you walked up to them? Total reframe. I love that reframe. It's advice combined with a reframe. Like be like the Dale Carnegie course. And then the reframe is I'm going to this social situation and I'm going to be able to give the gift of my interest to anybody I feel like at this party. But, but also solving somebody's biggest immediate problem that they're standing there wishing they were talking to somebody and knew what to say. You also suggest to either talk, and uh, correct me if I'm uh, wrong, uh, you, you also suggest either talk to the, let's say the alpha of the party, the most popular person at the party, or someone like, like you just said, like someone like yourself, who's just sitting in a corner and not like sort of the lowest person at the party. Uh, maybe explain some of the rationale behind that. Yeah. If you walk into a room and everybody's already talking to people, they're, all, they're already paired off and it's hard to break into a group. Um, I suggested that if you see uh, men talking, they might try to be alpha and maybe exclude you, you know, with their body language. They may, they may not open up just because you walked up to them. But if you see an alpha woman in a group, 
and you can tell that there's clearly somebody who knows everybody. If you can find that person a moment that they're not directly in a conversation, you know, say they're walking somewhere, just intercept. Because if you can, if you can hook up with the strongest female character at a group, they'll introduce you, they'll talk about you to other people, say, hey, have you met? What's it? So, so meet a connector because connectors like connecting. It's part of their payoff. Oh, I introduce you to this person. That's what they get out of it. So you're not asking anybody for a favor. You're giving them what they want to do. Connectors like to connect. You know, it's funny how you have this, it's like you've created this one framework that, you know, this concept of reframing that where you apply it to, to many disparate life situations. But at the same time, there's been other, like for instance, the idea of looking at your problems and they're not important because I'm not important. This reframe is connected to like, let's say Buddhism where you remove the ego and that's how you solve all of life's problems. Or, uh, you know, in the social situation, you're really just, just describing, like you say, Dale Carnegie's courses, but you've created this common language to kind of connect all these different situations that, you know, entire religions have created or evolutionary biologists in the case of going to the alpha woman versus the alpha male. It's fascinating that you've kind of like systematized, you know, one approach that covers all of these different life situations, even though they're completely different problems. Yeah. You know, I think just saying that there's a thing called a reframe uh, just allows people to look for them. And once you read a bunch of them, you see a bunch of reframes like in this book or just in life, then you can start to make your own. And so I, I'm starting to hear from people who say, oh, I, I tried this own reframe of my own. And when I hear it, I might say to myself, I don't think that would work for me. But that doesn't matter if it worked for them. You know, reframes don't have to be logical and they don't have to be factual even. They just have to work. So, so talk about this one. In terms of um, here, uh, enduring bad things, uh, the usual frame is, why can't my problems go away? And the reframe is, everything has a right to exist including this problem. Well, let's say though, like uh, it's, it's a problem that's really inconvenient for you. Like let's say uh, the IRS just sent you a letter. Okay, oh, you could, the usual frame would be, oh, why, why is the IRS sending me a letter? The reframe in this case is, well, the IRS has a right to send me a letter. Yeah, well, here, here's the background on that. My belief is that all uh, anxiety and fears and stuff are based on how you think things are or should be and then how they actually turn out. You know, the difference between, and, and you're like, oh, it should have been this other way, but ah, oh, and that just gives you mental consternation. But if you say the problem has a right to exist, then you've removed the conflict between what you're expecting and the actual outcome. You're like, well, I'm still going to do all the things I know I need to do to get good outcomes, but I did the right things, and then there's still this problem. It just exists. It doesn't have to make my brain go on fire. It simply has to belong. It's just part of my universe. I got some good things. I got some bad things. I'm working through the bad things. But you don't have to also think of it as this huge difference between what you wanted and what you got. Just let it exist. Yeah, and I wonder though if sometimes the reframe is 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 more challenging. Obviously, there are reframes that are more challenging to come up with than others. Like, let's say, oh, because I got this letter, I can't take my wife on the wonderful vacation she was looking forward to, and now she's going to hate me. Which, of course, is just an anxiety. Maybe not be true, but uh, you know, I wonder how you 
keep on reframing to kind of find a, a, a universe. You're basically looking for the right universe to live in with these reframes. And how can you keep on reframing to find that right universe? Well, it's trial and error. The, the beauty of the reframes are that if it's one that's not going to work for you, it just, it just leaves on its own. You read it and then you don't think about it again. But if it's one that's really going to you know, get to your core, you read it once and it just never leaves your head. Uh, the best example of that is alcohol is poison. Now, I didn't think that that would be a terribly important reframe. I just mentioned it once in reference to how I'd, you know, personally stopped recreationally drinking. I didn't, I wasn't an addict. I just thought, you know, it would be better if I just didn't. And dozens, maybe hundreds of people by now have gotten back to me to say they, they quit a lifetime of over drinking. Not this is not for alcoholics. Uh, addiction is a different problem, uh, and they said that just that simple sentence: that alcohol is poison, because poison has a bad connotation. And if you pair uh, your alcohol with beverage or food, they have a positive connotation. If you if you pair it in your mind, just using words, just words alone, it's poison. That reframes your brain a little bit, so it's easier to resist it. And I, I couldn't have believed that would be as effective as it is, but it also tells you that these work without the logic connecting anything. You just associated it with poison. And that was it. You know, this this has been your overall philosophy throughout all the years I've known you, which is that essentially humans are programmable and that we're kind of just this bag of bones that can be programmed like a computer. And what do you think is just your personal opinion? Like, what do you, what do you think is actual consciousness or maybe consciousness doesn't really exist? Oh man. I feel like consciousness is the part of your brain that's checking your predictions against your actual outcomes and that that's all it is. And that if you gave AI the ability to not only do things, but to predict how it will turn out, and then evaluate how it turned out and, and then have to deal with the difference that it would have consciousness. But AI does kind of have that ability. Like that's like, let's take an AI that plays a game. It thinks according to its AI that, Oh, this is the right move in this chess game. And then if it loses, it readjusts the weights on its AI slightly so that the next game it'll play a little bit better. Well, that doesn't sound like a, um, immediate process it sounds like you know a process that can happen and, and get you a result but i'm talking about in the moment i'm saying what's going to happen if i pick up this item what's going to happen if i take a breath so i'm always continually imagining what i'm doing what the effect will be and then comparing it to what is and i think that is our consciousness i think that's all it is that's different from saying uh the last time i built a house uh, one of my rooms was too small. So 10 years from now, if I build another one, you know, I'll make sure that room is bigger. Hmm. Like that's not consciousness. That's just learning. And uh, do you think, do you think, I mean, is there a scientific basis for any consciousness? Like right now, scientists, again, this is, this is sort of given free reign to every religion is that science just has no answer really to consciousness. So everybody else is allowed to throw in like, you know, every religion in the world is allowed to come up with their own theory of it. Yeah. I mean, I've got my own theory and so far it's, it's, uh, 
it's worked out. <laughs> in other words, nothing in the real world has you know, got me in trouble because that's what I think consciousness is. But I think we're going to be um, blown away the same way we were blown away that looking at word combinations can create something like intelligence. As soon as we find out that the machine just has to watch itself working and compare its prediction to its outcomes like in real time and that that's consciousness, we are going to be underwhelmed with what consciousness is. I don't think it's magic. I don't think it involves your soul. I don't think it's the Holy Spirit. I think it's just a mechanical process. Yeah, and, and it, it kind of goes along with the idea that, to some extent, humans are largely programmable by words and environment and so on. And this is kind of the basis for, for hypnotism. Like this, this, this approach of reframing is, again, almost some kind of a self-hypnosis. So you self-hypnotize so you're not worried or stressed or anxious or or lacking success or whatever, what would be, and we've talked about hypnotism before, but what would be an easy way I can try a hypnotic technique on other people? The, the reframes. The, so the reframes are meant that you could use them on yourself or you could just say the sentence to someone who hasn't heard it before. So hypnosis uses a number of techniques that the reframes kind of make uh, portable. One is just association, like alcohol is poison. So if you're a hypnotist, you would use the technique of uh, associating a good or bad thing with a, with a certain other behavior. For example, uh, my mother uh, had a doctor who was also a hypnotist, and he tried unsuccessfully, but he tried to get her to quit smoking by imagining that whenever she thought of a cigarette, she thought of licking an ashtray. Now, it turns out that wasn't enough to quit her addiction a hypnosis isn't really good for addiction but that's the idea you know so that that would be a typical hypnotist thing or if uh, there was something that you were uncomfortable about you could imagine you know hugging a cute puppy while also let's say you were afraid of flying i might say all right imagine you're flying but you have your dog with you your dog's on your lap oh, doesn't it feel good to have that dog on your lap and then you would associate the you know the comfortable feeling of the dog with the flying until a little of the dog comfort, you know, bled over. It's not the only way to do it. But the, the idea is that hypnosis uses association, but it also uses the power of words. Words carry little programs with them, like poison is a good example. It's just one word, but it carries like all kinds of emotional impact with it. And a lot of our words do that. So the hypnotist is looking for the, the word, the imagination, the association, and then the repetition of the things that are working. So there's maybe a, a dozen or so tools in the hypnotist toolbox, but a reframe captures the strongest parts of them and then frees it from the hypnotist subject model. So I can just hand it to you, type it to you, say it to you. It, it frees it from its little container. So um, I was afraid of flying my whole life. And then Everyone's got their 9-11 story. I was at the World Trade Center. I saw the first plane come in. And after that, I completely could not fly. Like the slightest turbulence, my brain would go insane. And then I had, this was my most visceral experience with what you're calling reframing. I had a reframe, which completely, like I love turbulence now because of this one simple reframe. And it works. It was unbelievable to me how well this works. Have you ever seen the TV show Lost? Yeah, uh, I know of it. I haven't watched all the episodes. So 
I watched it. I loved it. I loved all the characters. And it starts off with the plane crash. And then lots of adventures happen on this island where they can't get off the island. So whenever there's turbulence now, I pray that we crash because I'm going to land on the island and lost. Like I hope to crash. And now I love it. I love turbulence. <laughs> now, so that's, that's a perfect example of what you want to, um, this will be a compliment that sounds like I'm not heading that way. So that was a perfect uh, use of a reframe, but it displays that the reframe doesn't have to be logical. Right. And, and, and you can't do reframes until you release yourself from the need to be logical because it's just the words doing what words do, just like AI, right? It's just a mechanical process. So you, you use, I would call that a mechanical process, not a logical process. You simply put your brain in a positive place or an exciting place or a place that would give you curiosity, which is a very powerful thing to do. Curiosity will just move your attention uh, toward the curiosity. That, so it, if it worked, it worked, and you don't need to explain why it's not logical because you did it perfectly. You know, it's 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 so interesting because you're right; it's not logical. Like I guess if I intellectually thought about it at that moment, I would know that was just a fictional island. I'm not really going to land on on the island of Lost, and so on. And yet, but yet at that moment, I completely a hundred percent believe that I'm going to land on the island of Lost. Right. Yeah. The the reason that that is easy to understand is, like I mentioned before, you can watch a movie that you know is fiction, but you have real feelings. So so you basically created a movie, almost exactly a movie, because it's based on a TV show, and then the TV show gave you a set of feelings that were you know better to handle than the ones you had. So that's a perfect application. So what what's another completely illogical reframe that works really well for you? Well, you mentioned the most irrational one, the, that your problems have a right to exist. Uh, here, here's another one. Uh, if you have critics, so you and I, we have, you know, we're public figures. We end up getting a lot of trolls and critics. And sometimes they can really get under your skin. They can really bother you. And uh, this is something I discovered when I owned a restaurant. And one of the employees had a complaint and decided he was going to pick it all by himself just every day standing in front of the entrance to the restaurant, you know, this restaurant's unfair. And one day the staff was, you know, really being bothered by it and it was just getting under their skin. And, you know, they thought maybe it was actually affecting their business and their tips and everything. So they were pretty bad at this guy. So after a few days, I thought he would quit, but he was like, really, he was going to be there every day. So one day I come in and I say, Hey, I see your, your mascot is back. And I was talking to my partner in the restaurant and she laughs and then, you know, we started said telling the other staff, yeah, it's the mascot. We got a mascot. And as soon as we reframed him as a mascot, it became hilarious and all of our concerns went away. And every day he showed up like, hey, mascot is back. And I found that I could use that online as well. Like uh, Keith Olbermann likes to come out of his, you know, from under whatever rock he lives under uh, every few months to to uh, attack me online. It's been going on for a long time. And what he does, I used to get mad. It's like, oh, Keith Olbermann, how dare you say those things so untrue and unfair that I'd like to fight back. And, you know, it would just be you know, nastiness online. But now when I see it, I just retweet it. And I just say, my mascot, you know, busy again, or some version of that. And it just makes me happy. It That's interesting you bring that up because I have a similar situation where someone who's from the same network as Keith Olbermann also 
every few weeks sort of resurfaces and trashes me in some way. And this has been going on for about three years. And I don't respond or I don't retweet. I don't do that because I feel like that will give energy to his thing. And, and it does bother me though, what he's doing, uh, because I thought this guy was a good guy and he's not and whatever, but maybe I need to, to work on reframing this somehow. Well, but you see that you're, you're, you, you explained it ex exactly perfectly. You had an expectation about that guy. He's not meeting your expectation. And this is causing your brain to like have some conflict. But as soon as you say that guy's your, your mascot, eh. <laughs> try it. You'll be surprised. Yeah, I will try that. But l let's take over the case of your restaurant. Now, what if it really was affecting their tips and affecting the business and, uh, and people you know, and even though they kept calling him mascot, they saw their tips and business continuing to decline as long as he was out there. What would? Yeah, the, well, the thing is, there, it didn't look like there was anything that you could do about it. If there's something you could do about it, then you should you should do that instead. But it's free speech, and he was on a public sidewalk, and we were all free speech lovers, so we weren't going to stop him. Uh, that just wasn't going to happen. And, and not that it would be legal to stop him anyway, but it never really was a thought. It was really about waiting until he got tired of it. So under those conditions, might as well wait it out in comfort. I see. So if you weren't planning on shutting down the restaurant or beating this guy up or taking some other action and you're just, like you say, it's free world. You could stand on the corner and do whatever he wants. You might as well just figure out how to enjoy life and continue as is without feeling upset. Yeah, and it's a little bit like the Band-Aid example, the reframe. We knew it was temporary. We just didn't know how temporary. So knowing it's temporary gives you some comfort from the start. I like how in the book you bring up the, the ultimate reframe, which is an, a very fascinating issue, which is the, the simulation hypothesis, the idea that we're just in a giant simulation. And at first it sounds ridiculous, but the concept is, you know, already – you know, humans at our very simple stage of development, and humans have only been, you know, sort of had the written word for, let's say, five to 10,000 years. And we're already creating entire virtual worlds that almost seem real and they're populated by avatars and whatever. So imagine if there was a civilization that lasted a million years already, they probably could make completely real simulations. And we might just, there might be, an infinite number of worlds in that civilization's universe because they've created billions and trillions of civilizations. So out of the trillions of universes out there, the odds are we're in a simulation. We're not in the real world. And that is the ultimate reframe because all right, if we're in a simulation and it's even a simulation we could somewhat control to some extent, you know, have at it. Yeah. Now, and I like to add that even though that's my preferred model of life, I act and predict as though I'm part of a simulation, but I have no way of knowing if that's you know the the, the real world or or it's just useful as a prediction. But one of the things that that model can buy you is an explanation, a potential one anyway, of why affirmations appear to work for some people. You know, I'm not going to give you a scientific explanation, but affirmations, the idea that you write down what it is you want to happen, you focus on it for a while, and it makes it more likely to happen. Now, if we're a simulation, it's then all things are possible, even things that violate physics, because it would just be software. So if the, if the simulation wanted you to violate physics, there wouldn't be anything to stop it. 
It would just be a little bit of code that would let you violate physics for a while. So affirmations and the simulation work together as two mental models that might not be any part of reality. But if you put them together, they give you a real powerful frame to live in, you know, to use your, your explanation that it creates a world to live in. So when I live in a world with affirmations plus the simulation concept, then the affirmation is how I steer through infinite possibilities that are all available to me. And that's how I live every, every day. When I, when I go to the mailbox, I expect something in there to change my life in a positive way. Just because there's nothing to rule it out. Until I've seen what's in there, it, it could be anything. And so it's, it's just a good optimistic way to go through life. And it appears to give me advantages by focusing on things that do seem to turn out more often than they should. Uh, and my, my life has just been crazy in terms of the things that have happened that are amazingly unlikely. Um, so it predicts. And so I use it. I always think of what you just described, like the, just the, the affirmations aspect as like the Honda effect, which is once you buy a Honda, you see more Hondas on the highway. And that's kind of this proven cognitive bias. And I always sort of feel like if you truly believe, oh, you know, I'm going to have the greatest day of all today and you, and you have that affirmation and you believe it, then what will happen is like the Honda effect, you'll just start noticing things during the day that are more likely to lead to a great day as opposed to having a negative mindset where you just notice the things that are leading to a horrible day. So I've, I've always kind of viewed that as in that way. I did that experiment recently where I just woke up and said, I'm going to tell everybody it's going to be a good day for me today. And I had this greatest day, <laughs> you know, and I don't think we're fully cognizant and couldn't be uh, of how subjective our reality is. I mean, you could actually change uh, your, Without changing anything about your actual life, you can change it from a good day to a bad day, just exactly the way you described it, by, just, by setting your filters on what you're going to notice and what importance you're going to put on those things. Dive into the start of summer at Whole Foods Market. Check out their summer splash event with sales on fresh organic produce, organic strawberries, and a fan-favorite sale on Ben & Jerry's and Talenti. Explore deals on grill-friendly meats like organic air-chilled chicken breast, beef and chicken kebabs, all with no antibiotics ever from our meat department. Plus, grab easy sides from prepared foods and cool off with refreshing drinks. Kick off your summer and shop in store or online at Whole Foods Market today. If your child is struggling in school, then IXL is right for your family. IXL is an online learning program for kids that covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. Backed by research, kids using IXL are scoring higher on tests. It's no wonder it's used in 95% of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Plus, a month of IXL costs less than an hour of tutoring. Get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com 20. Visit IXL.com 20 to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. So I haven't really been on social media much in the past couple of years. I got a little burnt out when, unlike you, I had some criticism and it just got too much for me and I just kind of uh, took off. But, you know, obviously we've known each other a long time. 
I, I really love all your books. I love Dilbert. I've really loved all our conversations. And we booked this podcast and someone mentioned to me, and you've mentioned it several times on the podcast, oh, didn't Scott Adams get canceled? And I'm like, well, A, I don't care because I know Scott and we've always been good to each other. I'm going to be good to him. I want him on my podcast. I want to hear about this book. And, you know, so what, what was it that, I mean, I know now, but like what, describe what was it that got you canceled? Because I, because I looked into it. It doesn't seem like you should, it seemed like they were looking for an excuse to cancel you. They found one and it stuck. And so they got yeah. you. <laughs> yeah, it, it wasn't the first attempt. It was just the first successful attempt. Um, so here's what your viewers need to know as context. Number one, there's no such thing as news about public figures that's true. Like if, that's you, if you don't if yeah, if you don't understand the basic that no news about public figures is ever true, then it gets confusing fast. Now, when I say it's not true, it's not that I didn't say exactly what I was quoted as saying. That did happen. But a lot of the biggest hoaxes in the world happen when the video shows somebody doing exactly what they did, but some context was left out that completely changes what you think about it. And, and let me, so that's the first thing. Let me just add to that real quickly, which is that I'm not I'm by far not as public a figure as you, but every single time anybody has ever, ever, hundred percent time ever written any kind of newspaper article about me or anything, there's always been complete lies and untruths in it. And so I always imagine if that happens to, I'm not the only one that a hundred percent of the time people write lies about, it must happen to everybody. And I've heard that from other public figures that every single article ever written about them contains lies. So people, sh I agree. You no. should never, that's why I never read the newspaper. I never watch the news because it's a hundred percent. There are lies in every news article. Right. And and the, the look at the uh, biography of uh, Elon Musk. You've got one of the most respected biographers, you know Walt, Walter Isaacson, who got one fact wrong, which he now admits you know, that he got it wrong, which changed Elon Musk from somebody who might have been uh, preventing a nuclear war to somebody who's a traitor to his country because of one fact they got wrong about you know was his were his satellites already on or not, and who asked them. Turns out it was the Ukrainians who asked him to turn them on. But he said, if the president of the United States had asked me, I would have turned them on. <laughs> but I don't work for Ukraine. Right. And, you know, so, but if that story was just a little bit different, it changed him from saving the world to being, you know, one of the worst traitors you've ever heard of. So just understand for the viewers, because you already understand that that's more normal than not normal. So now, the second thing you need to know is that uh, everything I said, I did say, and I said that uh, some version of white people should move away from black people. Now, the, the second thing you should know is that's obvious hyperbole, because how would you even do that? You know, I'm not suggesting you know, Jim Crow laws or you know, going back to the past. There's no practical way to do that. So I was being intentionally provocative to try to draw as much attention to myself as I could so that I could do a reframe. Because I was planning to do it as part of the launch of the book before it got canceled. You know, we had a different launch date. And I thought, I'm going to really make some noise here. I'm going to get people really mad. Then they'll come to me, and I'll reframe it, and I'll tell you what the reframe is in a minute. Uh, because it's the biggest problem in the world, or America. Uh, and I think I can make a difference. But I'm going to have to get everybody really mad before I do it. So I... I I started riffing off a Rasmussen poll that showed that black Americans had a negative thought 
about being white. Now, without defending the accuracy of the poll, because it really didn't matter to my point, I was just using it as a, a launch pad, because the point still stands without the poll, so we can forget the poll. That was just an opportunistic way to introduce the topic. Here's the big picture. In the current world, uh, we've got ESG, CRT, and DEI. Um, most of your viewers are, are familiar with at least a few of those, but they all have what's, the same. What's DEI? I don't. I don't know DEI. Uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Okay. I think so. Corporations have uh, DEI managers who make sure that uh, the hiring and everything uh, reaches equity. Uh, ESG is environmental, social, and governance, which tries to make sure that your your company is promoting and being led by something representative of the public um, demographic. So that also has to do with you know, race and uh, gender. And then CRT is the more academic version that uh, has uh, also as a common element with the other two, that there's an oppressed class, black Americans, and there's an oppressor class that although slavery is gone and you know Jim Crow is gone, the legacy and the, let's say, the ripple effect, the systemic racism still exists. And so we still have an oppressed class and oppressor class. And my point is this. If, you, if you're in this situation where you're identified by every element of society, from the World Economic Forum with ESG to every corporation with DEI, they almost all have DEI managers now, to academia, academia? How do you say academia? Um, with CRT, you, you've thoroughly saturated the culture with the idea that one group is oppressed and the other group has their stuff and needs to give it back. And under those conditions, if you're the one that's labeled as the oppressor, you should get out of that situation. That's a dangerous situation to be in. I use the example of uh, I've lost two corporate jobs and a TV show because I was a white man. And I'm not guessing. I was told that directly in each case. In my banking job, my boss, who was white, said, uh, we don't have enough diversity. We're getting a lot of uh, pressure from the outside. Newspapers are on us, so we can't promote you. And I said, for how long? Like, well, you know, there's no end date. You know, it's going to take a long time to correct this. So I left. I quit. Um, and... Being a white man in America, I had lots of options. So I had, you know, just quit, got another job, went to the phone company, got on their uh, leadership training program. So I was going to be like have a, a rocket strapped to my ass, as they used to say. That was, that was the saying. He had, he had a rocket, rocket strapped to his ass. And one day my boss called me in and said, same speech. And not, again, white boss said, uh, I don't know how to tell you this, but the word has come down. No promotions for white men is we got to get some diversity going in senior management. And so that's when I started the Dilbert comic. You know, I'm part-time. I was like, well, I guess my corporate career isn't going to work out. So then Dilbert took off. I left my corporate career, and I started a animated, uh, animated version on the UPN. After it was successful the first season, it got renewed. But it got renewed at a time when UPN decided to make a comedy block on Monday night there was only African-American, you know, designed and uh, uh, focused shows. Now, Dilbert didn't fit in that, so I lost my time slot. And anybody who knows 
TV knows that when you lose your time slot, you lose your momentum. And TV shows are either going up or down. Ours went down when it changed. Uh, it was going up when people could find it. It went down when it moved. And that was the end of it. When I got canceled more recently, when my comic was removed from all newspapers in the world and my books were removed, all of them, from every shelf in the world, at least in terms of cancellation, um, I asked myself, would a black American have been canceled for saying exactly what I said? And I think everybody would agree. No, <laughs> absolutely not. And in fact, would a Democrat have been canceled for saying what I said? Now, that's a, a little closer call. I don't know. But for your viewers who are not aware of it, um, for the last, uh, I'd say, last uh, at least eight years, maybe, uh, I've been far more well-known as a political figure than a cartoonist. And if you're not really following politics, you wouldn't know that a lot of people would put me in the top 20 of politically um, persuasive people. Uh, so we're in the just, just to mention your, your, your book, Win Bigley, uh, described why in early, I think it was in 2015 even, that you predicted even as early as then that Trump would win um, the nomination and, and quite possibly the, the general election in 2016. And you were one of the first people to predict it. Everybody thought you were crazy. You were right. You wrote the book, Win Bigley, about how Trump used basically hypnotism techniques that you recognized to to uh, to win the presidency. So thank you. That's that's perfect context. So if you understand me as a past Trump supporter at the moment, I'm uh, endorsing Vivek Ramaswamy. But um, if you understand me in that context and you understand that this is a season where uh Players are being taken off the field by the other side as we get closer to a presidential election, then it makes a little more sense. But here's the reframe I, I was trying to set everybody up for. And it would have worked if my message had not uh, gone viral, got outside my bubble. Uh, the reframe is this if you're comparing the average of any two groups, you're in absurdity land. Now, it probably made sense historically. There was a time when that made perfect sense. At the moment, in 2013, even though systemic racism exists, um, I often argue with my audience, uh, some would like to say it doesn't, but obviously it does. And in my opinion, there's no way you can ignore it. Uh, but how do you deal with it? So here's the reframe. If you assume that you have to deal directly with the problem, you say the average of this group is different than the average of this group. Our goal is to have them the same well, we better take some stuff from this group and give it to this group, you know, taxes or whatever, whatever you're going to do. So, but if you had a systems approach and you say, all right, maybe the cause is, you know, what white people did in the past or systemic racism in the present, but what is the best way to fix it? And this is the reframe. The best way to fix it is on an individual basis. Meaning since there are no average people, there's no average black guy. There's no average black woman. There's no average white guy or anything else. We're all infinitely different. And every person needs a different package of solutions or help or assets to get to the next level. So instead of telling me that you need me to worry about the average of any group, which has created a situation where it's actually dangerous to be white if you're around black people, who generally, with the help of white women, <laughs> will, will try to get your stuff and transfer it so there's equity. You want to get out of that situation if you can, although there's no practical way to do that.
<laughs> but but I want to make the point that the current approach is creating poison uh, between relations of the races that doesn't need to be there. If you take it to an individual level and you say to me, Scott, there's a specific you know young black person who uh, needs some help. I would say, well, what help do they need? Is it advice? Do they need to know how to reframe something? Is there is there a connection? Is there uh, can I mentor? Can I can I introduce you to somebody who has your solution? So if you take it down to an individual level, you have infinite resources that work. You know, the, my book is just one of them, and uh, my other book, How to Fail at Almost Everything and Still Win Big, even more directly, is about uh, ways an individual can make all of the obstacles of life all of them, including systemic re, uh, racism, be effectively eliminated. So they can still be there, but you can slice through it because you've, you've worked on yourself. Your own tools are strong enough that you're like a, a hot knife through butter. So you can try to make the averages change, but what are you going to do about it that doesn't make things worse? That's what we're seeing. But if you say, how about every individual is infinitely different, and they have available all the tools of success, but maybe they don't know it. And maybe there's some things we can provide. So I'm working on, also with Joshua Lysak, working on a, uh, a student guide. So to take the things that are a little more adult-oriented, you know, like my book, and bring it into 30 lessons that you wish you knew when you were a teenager. You know, uh, imagine imagine learning systems over goals, talent stacks. Imagine learning that, Maybe you shouldn't follow your passion every time. You know, maybe maybe that's optional. You know, imagine just learning the things that took me, you know, thirty to sixty-six years to learn, but getting them when you're a teenager. How much is systemic racism going to bother you if I teach you that hey, you're black? Go to any one of these Fortune 500 companies. If you have the same skill set as the white people, you get hired every time. Not sometimes. Not most of the time every freaking time so take your advantage take your little stack of skills and and go kill it now because i don't have that advantage if i go to that same job i'm not going to be preferred i know that so instead i will start a company uh, i'll do my own thing and if that doesn't work i'll start a second one and if that doesn't work i'll start a third one but in the in the process of even failing I'm going to be picking up skills. I'm going to be networking with people. I'll, I'll have, you know, I'll have thicker skin. So I've got my own path, and I'm not jealous of somebody else's path that's different. We both can succeed. We both have an open highway. It's just two different highways. Now, at some point, wouldn't it be great if it was one highway? Yes. You know how you get there? By each individual person doing the best they can. And, and taking advantage of the best tools. That's how you get to the point where people stop asking about the average non-existent black person and the average you know, imaginary white person. Uh, as long as we're on that frame of the imaginary people, you can't get past it. Everything gets worse. And that's what we're, that's what we're witnessing. So the context that the news told you is that I'm a big old racist who doesn't like black people. The real context is I'm one of the only people you know who has worked with uh, Black Lives Matter to try to make their message a little cleaner to see if there's anything Republicans can agree with. I thought body cams was a good thing. You know, uh, back in the Black Lives Matter days, you know, they were saying, hey, if we had body cams, that would help. And I thought, well, why don't I help? I'd love to help with that. 
That's a very specific thing. I think the cops should all have body cams and maybe Republicans would help fund it. And then we could come together on that. But, you know, then I found out that Black Lives Matter was maybe had more of a political financial, <laughs> you know, uh, incentive. They weren't so much about problem solving. And so, so um, go ahead. And then, then, this led, then let me add that my primary incentive for creating a workbook for kids is that the poorest kids have the most disadvantage. And specifically, I'm introducing this term. Uh, I think black Americans have um, a glass ceiling that I call the imitation glass ceiling. And it's because of that narrative that there are oppressors and oppressed. How does any white person or Asian person, you know, Indian American, Hispanic, how do they succeed? Same way everybody does. They look at successful people and they try to pick out the characteristics or the habits that make it work. And they say, well, I'll do that. Oh, it's the people who work hard. Okay, I'll do that. It's the people who went to school and built a bunch of skills. Okay, I'll do that. But now imagine you took me, magically you turned me into a black American, and you teach me from birth that the oppressors are these ones who are, have all the good jobs. Do I imitate my oppressor? I don't think I do. So I think if you put me in that same situation and I were taught the same things, that I would say, let me do anything except act like my oppressors because these guys are assholes. Like I, I just don't, I can't be like that. So then you've got to, you, you're, you're cut off from the one thing that everybody else used to succeed, which is imitation. And so the, the workbook is uh, for kids is a way to get past that, to say, look, here are the things everybody does. If you're not doing this list, there's nothing else that can work. This, this works for everybody. Everybody who doesn't do this list of good things, they don't get good outcomes. And I think we're done here. If you're interested, we can show you how to be on this list of successful people. So in my own mind, of course, it doesn't matter to the public. <laughs> I, I'm a directly because of a great love for black people in, in particular. I actually love black people, which is weird to say. Like you, <laughs> it, it, it almost sounds racist saying that. <laughs> it, it almost sounds racist to say it. But I, I, did, I, I learned long ago, or it's just a thought, that if you say, oh, I don't have a problem with black people, like that just doesn't really sound true, right? It just sounds like something you say, or I have a black friend. None of that sounds real. But if you can honestly say, I love black people, which I do. Uh, individually. I've never had any problem with anybody in person. Uh, then you can say, all right, I'm trying to help. I tried to help Black Lives Matter. I tried to help Colin Kaepernick. When Colin Kaepernick was being you know, destroyed by the right, uh, my audience was mostly right-leaning people. And I defended him from the start. I said, do you not understand what a, a protest is? A protest is somebody making you mad because they inconvenienced you in this thing that you were just trying to enjoy your Sunday. That's what it was. It was a great protest. Now, you could argue about the things he's asking for, whether those are the right things to ask for. But as a protest, it's one of the best protests I've ever seen. Everybody knew about it. Everybody talked about it. Like things prob Probably there are more uh, police cams, body cams, because Colin Kaepernick existed. Right? So, so I'm probably one of the best friends to the black community, except I don't want to say it that way. Because then I'm co comparing the average black person that's not real to the average white person that's not real. And I'm trying to lose that frame. 
So I'm going to try as hard as I can to stick to the personal success habits and techniques that will have a disproportionate effect on black Americans, good effect, because they don't have the imitation uh, opportunity. But if they see it in, let's say, their teacher presents it, maybe the teacher looks like them. Perfect. That's the perfect situation. I, I also was thinking part of the context was this general concept that you were sort of making fun of the narrative that there's an average white person and an average black person. But you basically said, if someone hates me or so, if someone doesn't want to be around me or imitate me, I probably shouldn't want to be around them. <laughs> like it was probably best for me to not be around them. And you're basically saying how the media is portraying the average person. If that average person, some portion of them doesn't like you, probably safest for you not to be around them. Right. Yeah. So literally nobody disagrees with the point when they, when they hear it in his fullness, but when it just turns into a, you know, a quick quote and then the news frames me, once the news frames you, people don't really get out of that frame. You know, once you've been called something, that's who you are for the rest yeah. of your life. In, in part, it's because of the marketplace. Like take all the newspapers that dropped Dilbert. Obviously a lot, like just like a lot of people who know Scott Adams, know Scott Adams as political commentator. A lot of people who just read Dilbert every day have no idea who Scott Adams is. <laughs> they know Dilbert, they don't know Scott Adams. So, right. but the marketplace, suddenly every editor of every newspaper was being told by a small portion of their readers, hey, you can't have Dilbert in your newspaper anymore and, or you're gonna lose business. And, and advertisers didn't wanna advertise because they had a small portion of their interested consumers saying the same thing. And so that cost you, you know, hundreds of newspapers where Dilbert was syndicated. Were you upset? I, I know you've said in other podcasts, hey, I feel as free as I ever do right now. But at that moment, were you like, what the hell is going on around here? Yeah, I don't think anybody will ever believe me when I say this, but I swear to God, this is true. It was never unpleasant. And I, I can't explain it. I mean, every, every external objective factor, I should have been having a bad day, but it never happened. I, I just said, oh, here's a new set of things. I felt like I woke up in a new video game. And part of it is because it accidentally accomplished some things that I didn't know how to accomplish. Like it solved my biggest problem. My biggest problem was I couldn't figure out how to retire. <laughs> <laughs> and literally, because I was 65, and I, you know, I was looking desperately for, I won't say desperately, but I was looking hard. It was my main focus career-wise is how do I you know, wind down and, and retire. Now, I define retirement as still working, but only the stuff you want to do. So yeah. making, making a student guide that could make the world a better place. I, I'm not even thinking about the money. I mean, if I could give it away for, I, I had to you know, talk Joshua into even selling it. I was like, well, we should just give it away for free, right? So I'm totally not on the, you know, the, the uh, you know, acquisition phase of my life. I'm in the, I just want to do things I like and, you know, add something to the world. So once I got rid of the whole publishing world and the syndication world and the other partners who tell you what to do, I realized I could sell my comic on subscription. So it's available on the X platform. You just hit the subscribe button on my profile and you can see the comic there, but I've made it more uh, spicy. 
So I couldn't do any controversial things. I couldn't use any even semi-naughty words, you know, mm-hmm. in, a, in, a, in a newspaper. But now I can do anything. And the subscribers, you know, are expecting it to be edgy, so they're fine with it. It's also on the Locals platform. So on Locals, uh, scottadams.locals.com, it's also a subscription. But I do also another comic called uh, Robots Read News and a bunch of political stuff there. So And the, a lot of live streaming. So. I managed to go from a world that I was desperate to get out of into actually my ideal world, which is I have full creative control and it's not people who are complaining because they're signing up to see it. Well, what about, what about though, like, do you ever walk out of the house, someone recognizes you and like spits on you or anything like that? Uh, strangely enough, uh, I had been so canceled just by being uh, identified as a Trump supporter in 2016 that uh, I'd already, already thought you were crazy. Uh, no, I'd already lost almost my entire social network. It was just you know yeah. decimated by that. So it wasn't much of a difference at all socially. Uh, and I believe only one person that I know of uh, actually said, mm, maybe we shouldn't hang out. Uh, but only one. And you know, it didn't change my life. I'll, I'll, let me let me tell you what does happen. I do a lot of work at Starbucks because I just like the atmosphere for work. And on a regular basis, maybe once a week, somebody approaches me at the table and, and usually bends down. It's often a man and says, um, excuse me, excuse me. Are you are you Scott Adams? And I'll, I won't know which way this is going yet. Like this could go terribly wrong. And I'll be, yeah. And then the person will say, big fans, you know, glad, you know, we've been following you forever. You know, keep up the good work. Yeah. You know, don't worry about the cancellation. And, and then they go away like that. My experience is that I turned into a, a superstar uh, in ways I've never experienced before. I mean, I've been famous for 25 years and people love Dilbert, but there is a level of appreciation for not letting the machine kill me, just surviving and surviving with a smile that people really respond to because everybody feels the machine is pressing them too. And when they see somebody who wasn't crushed, even though the machine took the best punch they could, I took the best punch they had. I mean, you can't get a better punch than having your entire business eliminated, your legacy erased and being labeled as the biggest racist in the country. Now that's complete. Swear to God, it didn't bother me much. It's, uh, it, I, I never had a bad day. It's so interesting because again, I mean, I've seen all the discussions and uh, as while preparing for this and it really did seem like it was, everything was taken out of context and it's just a shame. Uh, and look, you see it with a lot of people, but then it's like a lottery, like, like who gets picked to be canceled? Cause look, and, and, and I don't even have the mind, like I don't have the mindset where I care, even if it was, aimed at me. Like I I'm Jewish. I have a lot of Jewish friends. Everyone's so upset at Kanye West and ice cube, uh, you know, for saying certain comments about Jews or implying certain things perhaps about Jews. And, and yet these are, t- for me, these are two of the most talented people in history, the history of, of music, particularly. I love like, you know, that music. And, uh, I would love to have them on the podcast, for instance, and whatever, like I literally just don't care whatever it is they believe or say about Jews. Like it just doesn't matter to me. And 
it's funny how many people just care about, again, things that were taken out of context, things that you don't really understand, you know, what's really happening. And they just ignore, they instantly ignore everything else except this one thing that has blossomed out of nothing, literally nothing. And then, then they, they, then they run their whole life based on that on so many different issues. Well, you, let's take the yay example. Do you think there's any chance that if you were in the room with yay, he would treat you like a Jewish guy versus just a person? No, <laughs> right. Zero right. chance. Yeah, yeah, right. Zero chance. Right. We, we don't act when we meet people, we do treat them as individuals. And then we act as if uh, when we walk out the door and get on social media, we act like all that mattered was the magic average person of the group. Um, so Ye said some things, of course, I don't endorse. But uh, he was talking about some kind of group effect that I don't think is real. But, you know, that, that's not for me to argue at the moment. Um, but he's not going to take that into the room. Like, I, I don't think that affects who he's talking to at any moment. Yeah. I would imagine he treats them individually. Yeah. And I, you know, you can, I could jump on the bandwagon that says, oh, that's the problem with social media. But of course, there's a lot of great things about social media. It's how we met, for instance, and how a lot of people meet. It's social, but it's also media. And media has probably more downsides than being social. But all right, thanks for, for shedding some light on that. And, and again, Scott, thanks. This book, Reframe Your Brain, blows me away because it puts into a systematized format so many things that I've done personally in my life and has kind of given me the tools and powers to do it in other areas of my life or at least reminds me how successful this reframing has been because it puts it into, again, one, one system. And, uh, and I like that and I appreciate it. It's a great book, great stories as always. Oh, who, so, so you like Vivek uh, Ramaswamy. Who do you think is going to actually win the election? I might as well get your prediction so I could start betting now. <laughs> yeah, this was a tough one because um, when I when I predicted Trump, it was because I saw he had a set of persuasion tools that other people didn't recognize. So I had, I had like a hidden variable that I could see. But in this election, you've got way other variables that are invisible. Number one is, is Joe Biden even going to be physically able to speak, you know, by election day? And I would say there's some chance not. I mean, he might actually be connected to tubes and you know, we never see him again two months from now, the way the way it's looking anyway. Uh, and then Trump, who knows what's going to happen with all the, the lawfare you know, attacks? Will any of them be successful? Does it affect the vote? But uh, I like to use the uh, the best movie reframe. Like what would be the best movie, the, the most entertaining outcome? Elon Musk uses this frame all the time that it, the hit, the reality tends to follow the most entertaining path to the observer, but not to the people who are in it, because it might be all bad for them. So if we take the movie idea, Trump hit his third act, the point in the movie where the hero is in so much trouble, you can't even imagine how they could get out of this trouble. Well, that was January 6th. All right. Nobody could recover from January 6th, because it was framed as an insurrection. Half of the country believes that uh, the other half tried to overthrow the country by sauntering around in a building for a few hours and doing some paperworky things that the Supreme Court would have <laughs> thrown away immediately if it ever come to, come to that. But so, but but they they believe it happened. So if you count that as his third act, what would be the best movie script 
for how he redeems himself if that if that's what's the most entertaining and i hate to say it but there's one thing that's just screaming for reality to manifest out of nothing and that is proof that the election was rigged <laughs> now hold on let, let me be very careful i'm aware of no evidence that would support the theory that the election was rigged i'm aware of no evidence however we do live in a world in which every other of our uh, respected institutions has been proven to be corrupt. Everything from the FBI to the you know, CIA to the, the media to, you know, basically the whole thing. It's all corrupt. But we're asked to believe that despite everything being corrupt, the elections are the one exception. And not just one, but all 50 states individually doing elections were all clean and pure. And not only that, but every precinct within those states was clean and pure, unlike 100% of the things that are in every other domain, from finance to you name it. So is it possible that something could come out that we had not seen yet that would prove Trump right? I don't know. I wouldn't bet on it. I wouldn't bet on it. But if you want to know what the most entertaining movie is, by far, it would be some new revelation that the election was in fact rigged. But the, the, the interesting thing is in order for it to be big enough to somehow get the attention of media, since the media has the narrative that there, there is no rigging correctly or incorrectly, um, it, it would have to be really big facts that we couldn't ignore because while, while Trump was pre president, and the same thing's happening in reverse. But while Trump was president, every single day, people would tell me, oh my gosh, the they're going to release the smoking gun on Monday or tomorrow or whatever. And then he's going to be gone. He's going to be put in jail and gone for good. And then the same thing's happening now, like every day. Oh, they're going to finally release this big thing from right. Hunter Biden's laptop and Joe Biden's going to spend the rest of his life in jail. And, it ne and after the election, people were saying the same thing. Tomorrow, the secretary of state of this state is going to finally whistleblow and we're going to see what really happened. It never, ever happens. None of the things anybody's ever said about these things have ever happened. So that's why I tend to believe whenever anyone tells me, oh, it's about to come out now about X, Y, and Z, I know it's never going to come out. So I sort of feel like that movie won't happen. Well, uh, when, when it was first alleged that there might have been some impropriety, I warned my audience uh, often and loudly that even if someday we found something wrong with any part of the election, you could guarantee that 95% of the claims would be bullshit no matter what. So right. whether or not there was anything real, 95% of the claims would be unreal for sure. Uh, UFOs are the same thing, right? If we ever found a real one, it doesn't change the fact that 99% you know, of them were bullshit. Um, so anything's possible. Like it, it reminds me of like JFK Nixon. There's pretty much a lot of evidence now that in 19, the 1960 election, there was some rigging, most notably in Chicago. I mean, right. it's, it's, I don't even know if the Kennedys deny it anymore. Like it's, there, there's, there's a, just a lot of, lots been written about it. A lot's been discussed. Nixon was actually suing for 10 months after the election. He, he kind of kept it quiet. He didn't make a big deal out of it. And eventually he just gave up because there was no, there was no point. And, and, and he didn't want to cause too much problems, but, uh, 
again, like this is not like this is the first time there's been election rigging. 1876, you know, you had, um, you know, James Blaine and, and uh, gosh, the, the guy who actually did become president, that whole thing was rigged. Uh, so again, I don't know, even if we find something out, nothing will, like you say, nothing will happen. So I wonder if that well, is actually the most entertaining solution. Well, uh, just uh, let me add uh, another little conspiracy theory to the to the mix. Have you been curious why the Republicans, who are so adamant that the election was not good, have not done more to fix it? Does that, does that seem curious to you? Because I, I have a theory for that, and the theory is that the Republicans are cheating in their states, and they 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 can't afford the lid to be taken off because it's dirty all the way. That's a possibility. Yeah, I that could be true. I also think just. Trump was really not a Republican and Republicans and Democrats just don't like Trump. Like both parties don't like him. So, and they, I think yeah. they were hoping, I think the Republicans were hoping kind of a Trump like, you know, a vicious sort of Republican like Ron DeSantis, who was one of them would win. But now it's looking like obviously the early stories is, are not the most entertaining winners. So, like, again, that could affect Ramaswamy. He might have been entertaining if he broke out in the convention, but he's breaking out a little too early, which spoils the movie theory a little bit. Well, I, I love having Vivek in the mix because if they take Trump out, they get the Hulk. Because the, the thing they don't see coming is if you had Trump's policies and you also had a you know, strong personality, but you had Vivek's uh, communication skills, where he can, he can take the pain out of the communication. You know, Trump says things that make your hair set on fire, both positive and, and negative. Where Vivek tries to find that middle where where it's hard to argue. It's like okay, right. uh, I'll, I'll give you that. So if they lose Trump, they're going to get somebody who can give you Trump policies without as much friction. You know, there there'd be less resistance to a Vivek than there would be to a Trump because Trump's created his own his own baggage there. Um, so I don't know. I, I think he's like a he's like a uh, a plan. He's almost like a, Harris is the thing that keeps Biden in office because you don't want that right. as your backup. You don't want the backup plan, right? Uh, you you know you know what strikes me as an interesting narrative in terms of this movie theater theory. Like what would be the best movie? And and this is not a political belief at all. But like RFK Jr. is interesting from a movie theory standpoint because the last two times. There was a one-term president or, or a president who in his first term had a primary challenger. As far as I know, we're 1980, where Jimmy Carter was in his first term and Ted Kennedy was the challenger. And 1968, where LBJ was in his arguably first term and Robert F. Kennedy was the main candidate until he was uh, assassinated. And so it was inter it's interesting to me, there's like that little historical narrative of Kennedy's connected to one-term presidents. Um, so it, that, that feels a little movie-ish to me. Uh, but yeah, it's, it, it's going to be interesting no matter what. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you my personal anecdote that makes me feel like I live in a simulation. Uh, a lot of people don't know that uh, RFK Jr.'s voice problems, it's got a name, it's called spasmodic dysphonia. And I had the same thing for, for years. And as you can tell, I don't talk the way he talks now. I, I had a surgery to fix it. But uh, uh, oh, 
to, to so, hmm? uh, no, uh, have you had a problem with it? Um, so it was coming into my headphones, so I couldn't talk there for a moment. Um, so what was I saying? Uh, Spasmatic dysphonia. He, he yeah. you had the surgery. So people kept saying, "Hey, why don't you tell him what you did so he can fix his voice?" So I did reach out and I tweeted about it and stuff. And he later contacted me and told me that uh, I did inspire him to seek uh, treatment. Now he did a different treatment, one that has a faster recovery, but I don't think he could run for president. Uh, without the uh, at least 30% improvement, I think, from his procedure. So I, I ended up having some you know tiny little, little connection to that story. <laughs> That's interesting. Uh, it's it's so weird how it's all connected. Like, uh, you know, with Robert F. Kennedy and, and marrying the actress who played uh, Larry, Larry David's wife on Curb Your Enthusiasm, when his wife in real life left him for Al Gore. <laughs> like, it's just too many. Wait, wild... wait, wait. Did that happen? Yeah. Al, Al Gore is with his ex? Yeah. I didn't even know that. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, she was a big environmentalist and ultimately spending a lot of time on the private jet flying around to environmental conferences with Al Gore. They became an item and he left Tipper Gore and she left Larry David. And just like on the show, the Cheryl Hines character also left Larry David, and in reality, Cheryl Hines, you know, is is oh wow RFK Jr.'s third wife. So, uh, and, and and just to complete it, uh, I've been c compared to Larry David so many times that he's actually been my he's been my Halloween costume more than once. So <laughs> you're kidding? That's funny. But uh, he probably would never give you a call though. So I, I don't think so. <laughs> Cause you've been canceled, but yeah. anyway, Scott, thank you so much once again for coming on the show. Uh, uh, the books reframe your brain. You can't buy it in the bookstore, right? Where can you buy it? Oh, you, you can now it's a, uh, it's available in Barnes Noble and Amazon has all the forms of it and a bunch of other places, but look for it online. Online's your best bet. All right. Great. Well, thanks a lot, Scott. And thanks for going over all this stuff that's been, that's been going on with you and I appreciate it. And you're always welcome on the podcast. Thank you. Thanks, James. I appreciate it. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. <laughs> 